0: This week on Writers Inc., um, I often have plot block. In fact, I have, I, have, I have plot block with every single book I've ever written because I don't know ahead of time what's going to happen. And my strategies involve, yes, walking. Yes, lying on the couch, staring at the ceiling for hours. Um, I always have to walk away from the book for a while. One of my favorite things is to go for a drive, a long, boring drive that loosens up your brain a little bit and allows uh, you to come up with a solution without really thinking about it.
1: J.K. Rowling was nearly homeless when she wrote the first Harry Potter book. Stephen King penned Carrie in a small desk wedged between a washer and dryer. James Patterson worked in advertising and famously crafted the Toys R Us theme song long before becoming an author. Join New York Times bestseller J.D. Barker and Indie Powerhouse's Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon as they pull back the curtain on some of the world's most prolific authors. Where did they start? What is their process? The biggest names in publishing all have origin stories, all have tips and secrets, What does it take to consistently
2: top the best-seller lists and become a household name? Get your notepad out. School's in session. This is Writer's Inc. Hey, man, I'm looking for a uh, a, a vacation spot. Any, any recommendations? <laughs> man, the, the
1: Georgia house is done. Um, my, my wife is actually sleeping again, and she's smiling again, which I haven't <laughs> seen in a very long time. Um, and she's got her first tenant in there, so she's getting to test, test everything. I mean, they basically just literally had to, like the, the people in the house finishing up the reno. Um, as the, the you know the first renters were coming in, and like she had to send somebody out to just buy like simple stuff like toilet paper and all that because norm- normally she drop ships that you know like by the case you know they buy tons and tons of it, but there just there wasn't enough time. So, but um, they, they've given it a glowing review, so I guess we're all good. The the roaches are gone. I guess that's the big thing. Yeah.
2: That that will definitely hurt your reviews if you have <laughs> roaches in there.
1: <laughs> yeah, but no, she, I mean, she literally took this thing down, you know, not not to the studs. We didn't have to go that far, but you know, it was a full cosmetic cosmetic um redo, you know, floors, paint, you know, new wall coverings, brand new furniture throughout. So it looks like a brand new house. Um, I know the the pool house isn't quite done yet. Um there's I think a couple more bedrooms in there and a bathroom. Um, but the, the main house is is finished up.
2: Yeah, that's fantastic. Uh what, what is your I know this is, uh, this is a hard question, but like, uh, given a reno like that, are, are you, you feel like you guys are good for like five years before you feel like you need to like reinvest in any kind of repairs or upgrades?
1: Um, uh, yeah, I mean, cause we, you know, she's very careful in, in what she chooses. So like the flooring was a little bit pricey, but you know, it can take a lot of abuse and it's, yeah. it's all com- commercial grade stuff. Um, so anything that she replaced, you know, it, it's all commercial grade, um, you know so for the most part that that can take a lot of abuse um you you expect certain things to break um but she replaced all the big things you know the hot tub is brand new the the pump and heater and all that type of stuff on the swimming pool is all brand new um washer and dryers i think there's three sets of them in there um oh. I, I think she replaced one or two of them not not all of them uh, but those are those are easy enough to to swap out um you know so we'll see but it should be it should be pretty quiet for for a little while
2: excellent Congrats. I knew that was, uh, was on, been on your mind for a while. So I'm glad that you, you got that, that cleared away, got that box checked off.
1: Yeah. I guess we'll, we'll throw a link to the house up in the show notes just so people can see it. If they're curious how the place uh, turned out. I don't know if you can see the original pictures anymore, but the new ones are up.
2: Cool. All right. All right. Uh, what I'm else is going on,
1: on? on in the Uh, well, did you see, um, you know, Simon and Schuster and Penguin Random House are, have been you know working on a merger for a while. Um, I just saw an announcement right before we got on the air. Stephen King has set to
2: testify in the, in that. I don't know if it, did you see that at all? I I haven't. Uh, is this is uh, to testify to what exactly? I, I'm not clear, like what his his role <sighs> would be here. You know, I'm honestly not sure. I, I'm guessing they're going to you know, it's a it's an
1: antitrust. Um, oh. case, you know, so they're basically trying to make sure that this merger isn't going to hurt the industry in some way. Um, you know, this is going to take us down from, I don't even know where we are now, big four to big three or big five to big four or whatever, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's going to eliminate some of the competition. So if you're Penguin Random House, they're out there telling everybody, well, you know, that's actually a good thing because now we're going to be able to pay our authors a little bit more when we buy those books. Um, you know, things like that. Um, The part that they're not talking about are all the people that are gonna get laid off when you you combine these two companies. Um, They're not talking about, you know, the the fact that now there's one less company agents can submit to on, on their list. Um, those types of things. So, you know, obviously King is weighing in, you know, whatever they ask him from a very different point of view than, you know, most authors are, are at um, definitely not from the consumer standpoint. Um, so I'm really curious. I, I really don't know where he, he falls on this. I don't know if he's for this merger or if he's against it. Um, I, I believe he's with Simon & Schuster right now. So he's, you know, he's one of their, their authors. So it's going to be interesting just to to hear his take on it.
2: Is the inevitable conclusion That we're going to have one new york publisher and amazon like do you think that's where we're headed (laughs) well
1: you know it's it's the whole antitrust thing you know it's to make sure competition remains in the marketplace but you know that literally does come down to it could be just two companies just like you said um, you know, whether they're going to take, you know, they basically would have to consider Amazon to be the same as, you know, like Penguin Random House and Simon & Schuster, um, whereas they might be able to, you know, paint them as a slightly different enough business model where they may not consider them to be, you know, on par with, not necessarily on par, that's not the right word, but not not similar enough where it's going to matter. Um, the closest thing I can think of, and I don't know if you remember this, but Serious. um, uh, satellite radio when they merged with XM satellite yes. radio. You know it was two separate companies. They were the only two satellite radio companies out there. Um, but they painted a picture, you know, even though they were basically creating a monopoly in the satellite radio industry by combining, um their real competition was everything else. Um, you know, so I think if Penguin Random House continues to buy up these other ones, which is I, I think primarily what we're going to see, I think they're going to be the, the final player in this whole thing if it continues. Um, if they're allowed to do that, you know, obviously they're never going to buy Amazon. Um, Amazon probably could buy them, um, if they wanted to at some point, but I I don't see those two things actually combining. So yeah, it really could come down to just those two in in the end of all this. Um, you know, it's, it's really hard to say.
2: You certainly can't paint every agent, all the agents with a broad brush, but do you get a sense of how agents feel about these mergers? Are they for them against them? Is it mixed?
1: Uh, everyone I've talked to is against um, for the the reason I just mentioned at the beginning of this, you know, when they've got a book that they've got a shop, they create a list of everybody they're going to take it out to Um, as a general rule of thumb, they only submit it to one editor at each publisher. Um, so, you know, there's one less name that's going to be on that list. Um, you know, a lot of these imprints, you know, even though they're under the same umbrella, they sometimes, you know, allow you, they're basically treated as separate companies. Um, so, you know, a couple of publishers could be under the penguin random house umbrella. Um, and you might still be able to submit to two or three of those editors because the, you know, the actual sub companies are, are still separate. Um, but in the end, you know, those, those things get combined too. I mean, we see it honestly here on writers Inc. You know, you see a lot of the publicists working for, for various, you know, uh, imprints. Under the same same umbrella. Um, Whereas, you know, five, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have seen that. So, you know, it's happening one way or the other. Um, You know, the other thing that they may end up doing, you know, like Penguin, Random House, and Amazon, like they could literally come back at some point and say, well, we're also competing with all the indies um, because that's a giant segment of the market that, you know, at this point, they don't talk about a whole lot. Um, But I I think it's going to become part of that conversation if these companies continue to buy each other up. um, That's basically going to be seen as the third wheel that they're all competing with.
2: And there's a lot of money in the ebook and audio markets. I, I feel like Trad hasn't hasn't really focused on yet.
1: No, no, not at all. So interesting stuff. I'm I'm curious yeah. to see if they're going to allow it to go through. I'm pretty sure they they will. Um, just because there are you know several publishers still out there. But you know, two three years from now, if we're we're talking about those those last two trying to combine, um, it's going to be going to be interesting.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I know. Uh, I know. There's probably not everything you can talk about, but you've been pretty busy the past couple of weeks with uh, a lot of things going on. Anything you can talk about that you're working on?
1: Um, no, it's, it's funny because I, you know, I, I try to keep to a very strict schedule. So I, I sit down, and I get my butt in the chair by about seven 30 and I'm, I'm writing by eight o'clock. Um, I usually knock my words out by 1130 or 12 and then I, I try and grab lunch. And then, you know, from there until about three o'clock is, is business stuff. Um, but that's, you know, it, there's a lot of things right now that are just competing for my time there. And it's not just interviews and, and marketing activities. You know, I'm working on screenplays. I'm working on multiple books. You know, I'm just I'm looking at I'm looking at the calendar. It's already, you know, we're recording this on a Thursday and there's stuff I was supposed to do on Monday that I haven't touched yet. Um, I'm very committed to just, you know, quitting my workday every day by three o'clock, no matter what. Um, because otherwise I could be in my office till 11 o'clock at night every day if you know, if I let myself do that. So I'm trying not to do that. Um, it's all exciting stuff, all very cool stuff. And it's amazing that it's all happening. I just, there's not enough hours in the day to do it all.
2: Yeah. Um, do you feel overextended or are you, are you kind of just accepting with where you, you know, where you are right now? And this is just a busy phase. No, I, I do feel overextended.
1: I mean, in a lot of ways, I'm really trying to you know, make sure that I still put out a quality product no matter what I'm working on. Um, I, I don't want to, you know, cut sh- you know short. On one particular thing, you know, just to to finish up another, um, and and degrade the the overall quality of it, and that's what I'm really struggling with. You know, there's things that I have to do that I have to absolutely get done, Um, but there's also people waiting on me for other things, and you know, those phone calls are happening, the voicemails are happening. You know, like, hey, where's this? How are you doing on this? I know you're busy, but can you take a look at? You know, like that. You know, it's it's there. Um, I, I would love to, you know, go back to that idyllic image of you know just being in a cabin in the woods somewhere with no internet, no phone, and just writing that next book. Um, but that's, uh, it's, that's not going to happen.
2: Yeah, that that's uh, that's just a reality of being a, an independent uh, creative. You know, you you and I have been bouncing a project back and forth for a couple of weeks. And when I started working on that, I basically cleared the decks. And for two weeks, that was all I worked on just every day, all day. But like you said, all the all the emails, the phone calls, those things are still going on and, and you have to come back and address them at some point. So. It, it, it's tough, but, uh, I think, you know, the, the key is realizing like which things you need to feed and which things can kind of wait and just trying to, uh, trying to walk that line. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: mean, aside from all that, I've got, um, geez, five weeks left before my daughter starts kindergarten, oh. which is another another weird thing to try and wrap my my head around. Um, and there, there's a meeting on Monday where my wife and I are going to sit down with her teacher and just to talk about her a little bit. Um, so I'm trying to make sure I'm present for, for that kind of thing too. Um, you know, it's my, my wife has, has been touting this as the best summer ever with her and, and Ember and you know, like, she's purposely trying to just keep her busy and do all these crazy fun activities because she knows it's really the last time she's going to get a chance to do that. You know, once she gets on this, the school roller coaster, you know, she's 18 before you catch a break in that, um, you know, and from what I've seen with, you know,
2: friends and family that goes by quick. It does. And, and, and that is, uh, that going to kindergarten is a surreal moment. I mean, there are many moments in the parenting journey that, that you'll always remember, but everyone I've talked to has can vividly remember the day they either drop their child off or watch them get on the bus for the first time. And it's a, uh, it's very mixed feelings. <laughs>
1: Well, her her school is is literally 500 feet from our front door. You know, so we can we can walk it. But I'm pretty sure my wife will be parked like out in the parking lot of the school. <laughs> and they, her face might be pressed up against the glass of the classroom, just kind of watching as the, the day unfolds. Yeah. Um, but I, I know when we go there on Monday, we have to pick out her her cubby in the kindergarten room and help her you know decorate it and put her stuff in there and stuff like that. And it just it, in a weird way, it almost feels like she's moving out. You know, like she's growing yeah. up. And so yeah, yeah. What's going on with you?
2: Well, uh did not hit the New York Times list with the Carbon Almanac. Uh came out last night. I was refreshing around 6:52 p.m. uh ho- hoping to see it there, but uh, it didn't hit. So, yeah, you know, like I said last week, it's not really all that important to me. I just thought it would be kind of cool to to get it on there. Um uh, but you know, I don't follow it all that closely. Is is it really only 15 books sort of per category?
1: That's it. Um, yeah. yeah, you, you checked all the categories, right? Because yeah. Like okay. I,
2: I thought I remembered the years ago looking at a newspaper and the, and there, it was like 50 books or something, but I, I, I-,
1: I- I think the times used to be longer. Um I uh, think USA today goes to like 150 or, or okay. something crazy. Um yeah, but they're they're down to the 15. Um okay. I I know the combined print and ebook, you know, you get, you want to make sure you check that um, Yeah. because that's you know like you, you could be number 1 on one list and not appear on the other um, yeah. just because of the way they they tally that kind of stuff up. Yeah. Um and, and you definitely check the date on it, right? Because that like it-
2: Yeah, I'm pretty sure and like I don't I'm assuming the the first the, the week after publication is your best shot. Um, yeah. That's probably when most of the sales are coming in, and I'm pretty sure we would have heard from Seth in the in the disc, discourse group if if it did rank. But hey, you know, like I said, um, that that really wasn't the point, and and uh, the project is still a success. But uh, yeah, a l- little bit of disappointment, personal disappointment.
1: Uh, uh, it's just like everything else; you just keep your head down and write the next one.
2: Yep, yep. Just gotta hit the next one. So, yeah, cool. All right, let's take care of some business, and then we'll get to the interview. I uh, want to give our shout out to our great friends over there at Kobo Writing Life that empower you, the author, to take your self-publishing career into your own hands. Remember, going wide is a book-by-book decision, so there's no long-term commitment here. You can still uh, pursue TradPob if you're you're publishing independently, and if you are doing that, you got to do it through Kobo Writing Life. You get to set your price, you keep all your rights, and you can do that with no exclusivity. Link in the show notes, or you can head there directly by going to kobowritinglife.com. All right, J.D., who do we have on in the batter's circle
1: today? This one should be fun. We've got Tess Gerritsen back. Um, She's a former medical doctor turned uh, New York Times bestselling thriller author. Um, She actually started out in romance, which is very interesting. Um, Her latest novel is called Listen to Me, uh, and it released about a week ago. Here she is, Tess
2: Gerritsen. Okay, so right now at this very moment, is there anything ripe in your garden?
0: Uh, Well, I just... just, uh harvested some snap peas, but, and the lettuce has already gone to seeds, but I'm waiting, I'm watching my tomatoes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know this is, uh, tomatoes are usually a little bit later in the summer, but snap peas are really good spring. So, uh, I'll bet those are tasty.
0: Yes. And, the, unfortunately I missed, I missed the lettuce. I was out of town when the lettuce like oh. reached its peak. So come home and all you see is like stuff you have to pull out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Do you try lettuce in the fall when it, when it cools off a bit?
0: No, I haven't. Um, that's a good idea because I still have some seeds left over.
2: All right. Well, there you go. I, I had a, I had a couple beds in my backyard for a number of years and experimented with uh, different things. So some of those spring plantings you can you can try again in the early fall uh, and sometimes they work.
0: Yeah, well, I've, I will definitely try that. And I'm watching my, <laughs> my green beans will probably not. I mean, they're just flowering now, so I won't have beans for another couple of weeks at least. Yeah.
2: All right, tasty. Well, I'm getting hungry, so we better change the subject. Uh, okay, <laughs> <laughs> you are your wonderful new book, uh, the new uh, Rizzoli and Isles uh, novel. Listen to me is coming out uh, at it'll be tomorrow if you're listening to the podcast in real time. Uh, book thirteen. Tell us about it. I didn't expect to write this book.
0: Uh, you know, I I I felt that at book twelve I was done with Jade and Maura, getting a little tired of dealing with the same characters again and again. And that's that's people who have long running series will often feel that way. They get burned out. So um, what happened was that I started hearing uh, the voice of one of the characters speaking to me. And it was Jane's mom, Angela. And I heard her say, if you see something, say something. And that wonderful Boston accent of hers. <laughs> So I thought, well, okay, what is she seeing? And it got into this. It became almost a suburban mystery in my head. Um, What does a what does a housewife see from her from her living room window? What's going on in her neighborhood that has gotten her so alarmed? And why does her daughter, the homicide cop, not pay attention? Um, I would say the theme is really about how older women um, they don't listen to us anymore. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, I remember uh, it, it, last time we, we, we talked about that. And so when I saw that that Angela was having a sort of a more prominent role in this story, I was like, oh, I see how Tess is manifesting that idea and thematically how that's coming through.
0: Yeah, it's also that it's also a story about mothers and daughters. Um, you know how it's 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 such an intimate relationship and yet it can be fraught with all kinds of, of issues Um, You know, I wish my mother was still here because I I wish I had listened to her about a lot of things. Um, But as we get older, um, people, as I said, they stop listening to us. I think older women become very invisible. Our eyes are always on the gorgeous person, the young person, you know, the person with with a blooming, healthy skin. Um, But as we get gray haired, we vanish from sight. And that is what Angela is is feeling. Um, She has a lot to contribute. She's very clever. She's very observant. And she has passed on those things to her homicide detective daughter. Um, so why aren't we listening to Angela? <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: you know, I, I live in Cleveland now. And so when I when I saw the mention you know, of the Cleveland abductions in the book, that really kind of caught my eye. Uh, was that a story you were following at the time or was that something you had to research?
0: Oh, yeah. I think the whole country was following that. That was just kind of a a shocking story that 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 would go on for so long. Um, so I I know that somebody like Angela would be following that story as well. It wasn't it hit if it hits People magazine, Angela knows about it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh. So the you you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago uh, that, you know, this wasn't supposed to be a book that you were going to write. Maybe not. Uh, What what sort of um, what's the catalyst or what's the tipping point where where you go from? okay this is an idea. I may or may not write it to. okay now I have to write this.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think it's when it starts to get fun. (laughs) Um, I had originally thought, well, maybe this would be a nice short story. Angela. Angela plays detective. Um, But the more I got into it, the more I realized her neighbors are are really interesting to me. She has um, a neighborhood where there are some peculiar people. Um, And the main mystery for Angela is who are these people who've just moved in across the street? They seem to be secretive. They're a young couple. They don't don't socialize. Their curtains are always drawn. The husband is wearing a gun. He's putting bars on the windows. All these things that would um, would probably alarm a lot of us, um, but certainly they alarm Angela. So uh, what I love is that she starts to enlist her neighbors in this. Um, as she gets everybody involved, including the so-called former Navy naval seal across the street, who's always pumping iron in front of his open window. Um, so I, I like, I just loved the interaction of Angie with her neighbors, who she has over for Scrabble, where they gossip and they find out all kinds of, you know, tidbits that are going on. Um, but it, it's a Rizzoli and Diles novel that I never lost track of that. So, of course, there is a murder that Jane and Mara have to solve at the same time. And my big challenge was, OK, I've got two separate possible crimes going on here. How are these related? And that that was the challenge for me. And I, I think that um, once I, I got to the middle of the book and realized that I was having trouble tying them together, that's one, you know, my stubbornness kind of kicks in and I just, I just want to find the answer. <laughs> Do
2: you have to go out on a walk or go for a hike or something to, to kind of figure that out? Or how did it come to you? How did, how did you resolve that?
0: Um, I often have plot block. In fact, I have, I have, I have plot block with every single book I've ever written because I don't, I don't um, have outlines. I don't know ahead of time what's going to happen. And my strategies involve, yes, walking. Um, yes, lying on the couch, staring at the ceiling for hours. Um, I always have to walk away from the book for a while because it, I know that something is, has gone wrong. Either, <clears throat> either the characters are doing something they wouldn't normally do, or I just really don't know a way to believably make everything happen. Um, but one of my favorite things is to go for a drive, mm-hmm. a long, boring drive uh, travel in which you are not really, but you don't have to really concentrate. That also helps too. So staring out a window, uh, out of a plane or out of a train, um, I think that that loosens up your brain a little bit and allows, uh, you to come up with a solution without really thinking about it.
2: Mm. Are those drives in silence, uh, music involved at all?
0: Must be in silence. Must be, um, and as I said, it must be boring. So it's it's you know like these long stretches where you know the road so well that you don't have to think too hard about where you're going. Mm,
2: yes, yes. Uh, you know, from a business perspective, I'm sure your publisher was thrilled that you that you had another book in this series. Uh, do you feel any any sort of obligation to to them or even to the readers to to just continue with it? Um, I know my publisher is much
0: much happier that I had a Rosalie and Isles book than than instead of some um, standalone thing because they know how to sell those and they know that there's a back, there's a lengthy backlist that um, people will want to read the next um, in the story um, next in the in the series. I I've gotten to the age now where I write for myself. Um, I don't worry too much about what the market is waiting for. I write the story that's called to me. And um, it, it's led to some, um, you know, some, some detours over the last 10 years. I and mean, I've, I've written probably th- at least three books that were not part of the series just because uh, they spoke to me.
2: That's wonderful. I, I love that. That's uh, it's aspirational too to get to that place uh, in your career or in your life where you um, you you feel that you can do that. And I know part of that the uh, last time we talked was uh, some of the work you did with screenplays and documentary films and, and with your son, Josh. Um, mm-hmm. Are you are you still writing screenplays? Are you still dabbling in film? Yeah,
0: well, um I- I, I, I don't remember when we last talked, I think that uh, maybe Magnificent Beasts had not come out yet, but it has since aired on PBS stations across the country. So, yeah, we were that was great. It was fun um, doing a, a collaboration with my son on a, a documentary about, of all things, pigs. <laughs> um, and uh, I have worked on a on a teleplay, um, which, I mean, we get paid for it. It just hasn't gone into production. So yeah, that's that's the nature of Hollywood. You write these scripts and people go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you get all the way to casting and suddenly things fall apart. So um, yeah, that was, that was a good lesson for me is at least I love writing books. I know I'm in charge and I know that somehow or other, it will go into production, <laughs> either as a self-published book or uh, with a publisher. Um, film, film can be very frustrating.
2: Yeah, JD has said that a number of times that uh, in in Hollywood, you you just, you never really know almost until like the film or the series premieres, like you just, you just, things can fall apart at at the last minute. Whereas when you're writing, you're right. Like, no matter what, if you have a manuscript, you can probably get it to market in some form or fashion.
0: Yes. And I, I don't know how screenwriters can stand it and not go completely insane because I know several who have written, you know, scripts that were Again and again, uh, accepted, greenlit. And then, as you said, the last minute, it all falls apart. So they're they're established screenwriters, and yet nothing of theirs has made it to the screen. (laughs) Uh, it, It must be a horrible, horrible career to have to pursue.
2: Yeah, I, I, I can only imagine that if you have, you know, if you're if you're playing sort of the odds, you're going for the Pareto principle. Maybe, you know, you have one or two screenplays that, uh, that do well and then can kind of fund your ability to continue to write without having any kind of certainty or guarantee behind the others.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that's really kind of sad about Hollywood is, um, you know, in the book, in the book business, the older you get, the more established you get, the, the more your audience follows you. Um, Hollywood's all about youth. It's all about who's the hot new screenwriter now. And the guy who's been toiling away for 50 years and still can produce a good script, they get forgotten. So it's, um, yeah, that's the other reason it's it's really tough out there.
2: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I wanna uh, revisit your your process. I know for some writers, their writing process can can change or evolve over time. Uh, are you still handwriting your first drafts? Uh, <laughs> still typing them back into the computer and revising from there?
0: Uh, yes, I am. In fact, right upstairs right now is my next book. And it's um, I'm just handwriting the last the last scene. So um, I I just I can't I can't compose on a computer. It's so funny. And I think I've told you I can type I think I was clocked once at 120 words per minute. So that is not my problem.
2: <laughs> for sure. Do you do you have a, a favorite pen or notebook uh, that, that you like to use something that works well for you?
0: A big stick. That's it. It's blue. I like the blue because it stands out a little more. Um, and I just use unlined typing paper. Um, I don't like lines. I don't like notebooks. I don't like anything to get my way. I just like plain old white paper.
2: Wow. So your, your handwriting, is it is it uh, printing or cursive? Oh, it's cursive. Printing is just too short.
0: I yeah. mean, it's too it's, it, it takes too long. Um, and I, because I'm... <laughs> Because I'm a medical doctor, I have, um, you know, medical shorthand that we use that really shortens things up. So, um, that, you know, have you ever looked at a prescription that a doctor has written for you and you like, what, what does this say? It's because he's used a lot of, uh, Latin shorthand. And I, I do that. I use that a lot.
2: <laughs> for listeners who's under 30, we'll put a link in the show notes to the term cursive. You can look that up.
0: Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why kids aren't using cursive. It's so much faster than printing.
2: It really is. It really is. I, I'm kind of uh, surprised that you don't require lines. Now, are, are you sort of, uh, are you also doing like little diagrams and pictures and things? And is that why? Yeah,
0: yeah I like the, the freedom of no lines. Um, sometimes my writing gets bigger. Sometimes it gets smaller. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes I can put little inserts um, on the side and you know little arrows and all kinds of little editorial notes to myself. Um, when you have lines, I think it um, it feels constrict it feels constricting to me. Yes. Um, and my first drafts, yeah. So so it's just like just putting it out on the paper, um, and then every so often I realize, oh, I need to fix this later, and then I will use a um, post it note and just stick it on there, just a little note saying fix this later. So the idea is forward momentum constantly. Mm. Um, I don't go back to edit unless something you know I really feel the need to. Um, but I think that editing slows down my process. Mm.
2: Do you save the notebooks or refer back to them at any point?
0: Um, I hold on to paper <laughs> until it gets too messy in my office. And <laughs> yeah, I, I had promised my my uh, my papers to a um, a women's collection at a university here, but. I've got so much now. I just don't, I can't imagine they really want it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) You never know. I mean, uh, you know, I I think as we move more into a digital world, if you have some, some primary documents that have been handwritten on real paper, there, there could be some inherent value there.
0: Well, it might be fun to see first draft and second draft and see how things have changed from, uh, from those drafts. And I mean, I think it it really does give you a, a good sense of the writing process when you see what, First came out of your brain, and what after you took after the editorial cap was put on, how that changed.
2: Yes, yes. Uh, I, I read in, in uh, a recent interview with you, you talked about characters being so important to the story that you aren't as concerned about the car crashes and the explosions as much as you are the characters. And the more I read your stuff, the more I have an appreciation for, for your, your talent and your skill in crafting these very authentic characters. Are there any particular things you do to, to, to make those characters come alive?
0: um no I think I I like as I said before I listen to their voices and it's a it's a a bizarre kind of process I can hear the way they talk and you know so much about a person by what they say to you first of all you know if they're male or female you know their educational level because of the vocabulary they use you know where they come from because of their accents uh, and you know their age uh, because as we get older our voices get a little more gravelly so there's all these things if you can just imagine a voice in your head and the things they say are do they do they speak in long-winded sentences or are they very brusque so um it's a it's a little bit like a conjuring i don't know um but that's that's how it feels to me and you know the other thing is i don't know these characters very well until i finished this first or second draft um when i first see them they're still cardboard and as the story goes on, you see what they do, and you see the things that they say. They become more real. And the second and third drafts are when I start to layer in all these other things about them, and and that's when the characters really become, I think, more real for me. Is is by the third draft?
2: Interesting. Uh, my, my friend Jeff, who's a, an expert at dialogue, talks about many authors have what's called mono mouth, where all the characters uh, sound the same. They all they their their voice. Uh, their, their tone, their word choice, their cadence, it's all very similar, which is a pretty natural thing to do when we're having these conversations in our head. So how do you make sure that your characters sound distinct in, in whatever ways that they do?
0: Um, that's, a, that's a really tough thing to do because if you have... Say colleagues who come from the same, uh, you know, they're both blue collar, they both do the same thing. They, they probably aren't gonna sound alike if you hear them on the street. So um, I, I think it's just more a matter of, of what I'm going through and I'm thinking, I don't know who said this because it got, you know, I've, I've kind of lost track of the he said, she said. Um, and then you start to think about how do I make this particular line more specific to this particular person. Um, but that, that, that is very, uh, that is monomouth. That's, that's a tough, that is a tough thing to get past. And I think that the number one way to deal with it is just to be aware when you get confused about who just said that.
2: (laughs) Is is there any, any way an author can, can practice or, or maybe like, uh, fine tune their ear to dialogue or are there any things that you've heard or or you've done yourself that, that would improve that?
0: no, just, just the men, just the mental uh, voices in your head. I mean, just listening to the voices. I'm, I, I can hear them say these things and I, can, and I can think, well, that sounded a little awkward. So let me fix yeah. that. Yeah. Um, the one thing I do, um, I pay attention to is, does this feel, are they saying things that sound awkward? That sounds like something they would say on the stage rather than on the street.
2: Mm, okay. Do you ever read your words out loud? Your, your uh, dialogue out loud?
0: In my head,
2: not yeah. out loud. <laughs> yeah. I don't need to read it out loud. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, If you, you go out for a walk in the woods and you're reading your dialogue out loud, people might think there's something else going on there. <laughs>
0: oh,
2: well, they know who I, they know who I am. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, 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 I feel very fortunate to to be able to talk to you at this point in your career. You've, you've had a a very long, successive, uh, successful career. You've been very prolific. Uh, And I think for a lot of listeners, um, you know, they, they seem to think that, uh, or they don't think this, but I think there's an assumption that like, you know, very successful authors just kind of appeared that way. Uh, But that's not the case. Uh, Can you take us back to the moment in your writing career where you thought, I can, I can, I think I can do this. I think I can take a shot at this.
0: Oh, well, it was probably after (laughs) I have to think back, you know, because I've been doing this for like, what, 30, uh, 35 years now. Um, I think it had to do with the first my the first sale of my uh, of my book to Harlequin Intrigue. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I know people think, oh, my gosh, she's a thriller writer, but she started in romance. Yes, I did. I started with romantic suspense and it was that first editorial call. Um, And I thought, wow, I've been toiling at this for a couple of years. I had some unsold manuscripts. I had a couple short stories that I'd sold. um, But uh, that first call and that first check, that was important. Uh, It's funny how much Um, getting a check in the mail makes a big difference to your spouse. (laughs) 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 You know, I think it's, it's, we know we're writers. Our spouses don't believe it. And that is the real challenge is getting your husband and your wife to, okay, dear. Yeah. I guess your hobby actually is going to pay off. Um, that's, that's tough. So I think that that's when I thought, yeah, I can. uh, somebody's paying me for this. I guess I could just do it again. Um, and again, and again.
2: Yeah. Did you have an agent at that time?
0: I sold my first book unagented. Um, wow. You know that was a great thing about, and it is still the great thing about romance publishers. A lot of them don't require you to have an agent. Um so you can break you can, you can get your foot in the door that way. I personally would recommend people do have agents, though, because I think they get better deals for you. Um, and even though they take 15%, they're going to probably make you way more than that 15% um, a commission that they are earning. Mm-hmm.
2: This is a bit of a hypothetical question, but it might be fun to explore. Uh, had the ease of self-publishing been around um, when you first got your, your first check, if you hadn't been able to sell that, do you think you were the type of person who may have pursued self-publishing?
0: Yeah, I would have. I would have because that that was a way to get your voice out there. Um, And I still, you know, now that I'm writing like sort of odd books, (laughs) things that people aren't necessarily expecting. um, If I was unable to sell that to a traditional publisher, I would have nothing against against indie publishing that myself.
2: Yeah, I mean, you uh, you have a, a very solid fan base, so uh, I'm sure that would not be an issue for you whatsoever.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think the the biggest challenge for me would be just the operational part of that. You know, yeah, how do you go about it, and all all the stuff that I really want an editor to take care of for yeah. me.
2: <laughs> yeah, for sure, and uh, just leave you alone with your notebooks and uh, and yeah. and let you do what you do, right? Right, right, so, and that's
0: you know that's what I love about uh, just just the job that we have. Um, is that people, for the most part, leave us alone. And we get, we get to tell these stories. Um, and if you're lucky enough to be traditionally published, a lot of the, the, as I said, the operational stuff is taken out of our hands. We don't have to worry about that. We don't have to worry about designing a book cover, or formatting, or all these things. That is, a, I'm sure that that is a big, that is a big problem for indie publishers is that it takes them out of the storytelling and into the business mode, um, which is a big distraction.
2: Yeah. And, and some folks don't want to be business people. They, they want to be primarily writers. And so, you know, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I, uh, I, I figure we, uh, uh, we'll end with a fun question. Uh, there's no right or wrong to this, obviously, but I, I feel like we're in a in a, a great time of change. Maybe all people in history feel this way. Uh, but I, I have a lot of optimism for the future. And I'm wondering what you tests are most excited about in the near future
0: in the near future, a uh, grandchild. <laughs> Honestly, really, I mean, we're most excited about the things in our lives, our personal lives. I mean, when I look at the landscape of politics and the country and what everything is, what's happening, I'm, I this. I almost feel like I'm glad I'm older, so I won't have to live and see what the horrible things that are coming our way. So, I mean, you're optimistic. I basically am a doom scroller. <laughs> Every morning I wake up and I say, oh my gosh, what's going on when when is the next pandemic this this kind of a thing so um it um it does feel it always feels like big things are happening things are about to change now there's war in europe um we just don't know and it's um it's a scary time and i'm i'm more afraid for my
2: children and grandchildren than i am for me All right. Before we talk about the interview, I want to give you folks a quick reminder that if you are looking for a high quality, easy solution to your book formatting, you got to get Atticus. It was literally this week. I was working on a project and I couldn't remember what the latest version of my document was. And I thought, oh, wait a minute. It's all in Atticus. So I popped into Atticus. uh, I went to that particular book. And because you can write in Atticus as well as format, I knew I had the, the latest version. So it's just another example of how uh, useful uh, uh, Dave Chesson's product is, the, the guy who, who did Kindlepreneur. So if you're looking for a great solution to book formatting um, that is uh, always always updated and always available, make sure you check out Atticus. All right, let's talk about Tess. Uh, you know, it's, it's such a, a pleasure for me on the return interviews because we've sort of cleared, we've cut through like a lot of the, you know, the introductory stuff. And so uh, it was a, it was a great pleasure talking to Tess again. I'd love to hear the gems you pulled from it.
1: Uh, I was writing down gardening tips. <laughs> yeah, to be honest with you, yeah, yeah. gardening is one of those weird things. Like I've never been able to wrap my head around it. And, and the house that we bought here in um, New Hampshire, the woman who had it before us, she was like a you know a hardcore gardener. Like she ran the garden club for the island. Um, you know, she would, had pictures in magazines. Like we've we got flowers in the backyard that literally lit up red, white, and blue for Fourth of July. Like wow. they, they, they bloomed those colors that time of the year. You know, every every July Fourth. And I've got I can't even grow the weeds. You know, properly. Like I, <laughs> I, I'm I'm terrible. So f- fun hearing you guys talk about that. Um, she brought up a couple of really cool points, um, you know, Tess being a, a pantser, you know, she brought up a plot block. I, I've never heard that term before, yeah. but, but, I, <laughs> but I wrote it down. I, th- I thought it was so cool. Um, and, and how she, you know, she basically has to step away from the book in order to figure out what, what comes next. And I've seen so many earlier authors, you know, make that mistake where they, they run into a brick wall and they stare at their computer. You know, and just you know, type this sentence then hit delete. Type another sentence, hit delete. And you know, sometimes all you really have to do is just take a step away. You know, that's, that's why I go for a run every day. Um, you know, she had mentioned going for a long drive. Um, yeah, anything like that that just kind of distracts you from what you're doing. Your, your brain is a phenomenal thing. It, it you know, it continues to work that problem whether you're you're thinking about it consciously or not. Um, and those answers tend to pop into your head um, when you're you're not thinking about it. Um, I love the fact that she yeah you know, writes in and. Um, by hand and like yeah. that was and, and like she's taking it to a whole other level like she's not even on paper with lines right and like writing in cursive like I can barely even write my name and, and read it the next day Um, I can't imagine writing an entire book down that way but you know it just it shows you know everybody's process is just totally different and you know every author they just kind of dial into the you know whatever works for them and, and just go with it Um, you know she had mentioned that her characters don't become real until she gets to the, the third draft Um, you know that that's important too and we, we kind of touched on last week um you know the the, the author that we had, had on had mentioned that she just kind of paints you know a very broad you know wide stroke type novel the first time around their first draft and then she goes back through and then she fills in her dialogue and her, her clothing and all that kind of stuff on her second and third draft like each passion kind of makes it you know brings it a little bit closer um and that's i think what tess is doing too and like anybody who's ever pantsed a novel before and even if you do you know if you're working with an outline those characters are always cardboard at the beginning um, you figure out who they are you know maybe a third of the way in maybe halfway in you know by the end hopefully you've got it all dialed in uh, but if you're not taking the time to go back to those early pages and tweaking your dialogue and your manual and those types of things to fit, you know, whatever you came up with by the time you reach the end of the book, you're really doing yourself a disservice. Um. Real simple exercise for that is take out all the dialogue tags. You know, you and I had worked on a manuscript at one point where you wrote dialogue only. Like that was an exercise I gave you, and it was intentional because I wanted you to focus. You know, strictly on the word choice. You know, everybody's word choice is different. Everybody's cadence, their, their vocabulary. It's all there's always the slight variances in it. Um, an exercise I used to give people when I was when I was mentoring is to go to a coffee shop, um, bring your laptop, and just you know eavesdrop on a conversation and just write it down you know, the two or three people sitting next to you, just, you know, document it and see what it looks like on paper as you're listening to it. Uh, if you can't type fast enough, record it and do it later. Obviously don't tell anybody you're doing this, but you know, you're going to, you're going to see differences. You know, you're going to see those voices come out. You're going to see different people there on on paper. And that, that's so important.
2: You know, one of the challenges that I've always faced when it comes to process is, um, and I, and I know you could, you could do it with a short story, but it's not the same. So like, if I hear like something like handwriting a first draft, I think, you know what, I'd love to try that. Or I'd love to try a dialogue only first draft, or I'd love to dictate a first draft, but the level of commitment for that, like, are you like, you've got to stick, like to get the full benefit, you got to do the whole first draft that way. I kind of think, and like, I wonder how many authors are willing to make that kind of commitment on an experiment. Like it's, you know, it's not like substituting spices for salt when you're cooking where it's like, oh, you know, this is a one minute commitment like this is that making that change. It's a big commitment. Like how, how would you counsel someone into that or, or to try something like that? I mean, I'm personally doing it. I've got a, an old Royal
1: typewriter that my mom gave me years ago when I started selling books and, and I've got a novel that I've been writing on it. Um, I, I come up with maybe, you know, anything from a sentence to a paragraph a day. Like I just, you know, as I walk by it, I just, you know, I, I write something. I try to get something on paper every single day, even if it's only a handful of words. Um, but I am, you know, I'm probably I'm just looking across my office right now, the stack of pages there is probably about 120 pages there right now. Um, you know, so roughly a third of the way through a, a book. Um, and the voice is very different, you know, just because I'm doing it on, you know, a typewriter versus doing it on, you know, in Scrivener on my Mac, you know, the process I I typically use, um. I've you know when I wrote the uh, the forum K series I wrote all the Anson Bishop diaries in italics and for some reason like when I write in italics like I hear his voice in my head and it's a very different voice from the rest of the book um so I do think it's important to to try all these different things and see what works for you and what doesn't um at the same time you don't want to lose focus you know particularly if you're paying the bills you know as a writer you don't want to lose focus on how you're paying the bills you know if it's a side experiment make sure you treat it as a side experiment and your your actual work doesn't suffer for it
2: I mean, do you, do you pretty much think you have to commit to, to the whole thing? Like it, what, what if I'm just going to handwrite the first three chapters? Is that enough to to get the experience? I think, I mean, you have to decide if it's working for you. I there, there's reasons people handwrite.
1: You know, it, it changes the way your your brain is actually processing when you're putting down on paper. Um, you know, Tessa mentioned she types 120 words a minute. I, I do too. That's that's actually where I'm at, is 120. Um, if I have to handwrite, it's probably like four words a minute. My <laughs> handwriting is terrible. Um, but it forces my brain to slow down, you know, to put it down on paper and handwriting, which means that you know the words actually coming out are going to be different. You know, the cadence and the style, the pacing, all that is gonna be slightly different because of it. Um, some people like to do that. You know, like I, I bet you if we were to see Tessa's pages, I bet you there's, you know, like changes in the actual handwriting itself. You know, like if somebody's shouting, the words are probably larger, um, you know, a little, little things like that. Um, you know, a lot of white space when she's trying to pick up the pacing versus when she's not. Um, you know, those kinds of things all become apparent. And I think, you know, it helps her to get that, that story out. So I think, you know, again, it's important you try it. If, it. if 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 you're two or three chapters in and you just feel like you're slogging and it's not working and you're just jonesing for the other way, put it aside. Nobody's forcing you to do it. Um, but I, I do think everybody should give it a try.
2: Yeah. And, and I, I think um, for me personally, my own preference is I, I think I'm going to try a first uh, a handwritten first draft because in a way it feels like the most purest form of storytelling except for sitting around a campfire and telling someone a story, like even dictating, you need like an electronic device of some kind, whereas handwriting, it's just like, it's you and the pen and the paper and, and that's it. And there's something really appealing to me about that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, she had brought up how, how you know, I, I when you get that first check in the mail, uh, how your spouse may react to it. I, th- I thought that was great, um, you know, because it, it's it's so difficult And I mean, we've got a lot of aspiring authors listening to this show. It is so difficult to lock yourself away for a couple hours every day when you're not getting paid for it, you're putting words down on paper, you know, getting rejected, you know, getting turned down, getting that imposter syndrome, you know, just banging at the door um, to just keep slogging away every day anyway, despite all that stuff, um, getting that first check, even if it's like $3, you know, like it's, it's, it's important. You know, and I think it, it does validate what you're what you're actually doing, um, not only in your own eyes, but in the eyes of other people.
2: It does, and I and I know that um, you know the, the more pure I'm putting those in air quotes, pure artists, or would say don't do it for the money. But I, I think realistically. Every, everyone who sits down, they they want their book read, and the way it's going to be read is it's going to be purchased by someone, whether that's an agent or um, a reader in Kindle Unlimited. I think it I think it really does matter. And, and I'm not saying it should be your primary focus, but I don't think there's anything wrong with getting happy about uh, being compensated for your writing. I, I just think that's a great way to kind of keep yourself motivated.
1: No, absolutely.
2: All right. Cool. Well, as always, uh, it's great to have Tess on the show. And I, I told her, um, you know, next book, come on back. I don't know if it'll be a Rizzoli book. It sounded like she wasn't sure that was going to be another one either. But uh, if there, if, either way, we, we hope to have her back. So uh, who do we got up next week? next
1: week we've got a guy named De- uh, David Ellis coming on um so he's one of James Patterson's co-authors um I've never actually met him or talked to him um, but he, he is one of my favorites uh as far as the, the various people that Jim writes with um for a lot of different reasons the writing is always very tight a um, lot of humor in it um this guy's actually a judge so like in his real you know he's kept the day job you know even though he's, he's doing well with the books uh, but he works as a judge in his, his solo career um he's got a brand new book coming out um just his name on the cover this time uh, called look closer um, which I believe it released uh, beginning of July. So it's been out for about a week or so. So David Ellis, that's going to be fun.
2: Yes, it will. Looking forward to it. I want to give you folks one last reminder about the Rocky Mountain Fiction Writers and their 2022 Colorado Gold Writers Conference. This is September 9th through 11th in Denver. Uh, They're drawing from the Rocky Mountains and beyond. This year's event has keynotes from Chuck Wendig and Catherine Center and three days of programming and craft, marketing, and more by Publishing Pros. And that's all on top of the networking opportunities you're going to find and including a chance to pitch an agent in person. So this September, attend the Colorado Gold Writers Conference to lift up and lift off your writing career. You can register today or find more info at rmfw.org slash conference dash 2022. And there will be a link in the show notes. If you'd like to be notified as soon as new episodes publish, make sure you go to writersincpodcast.com and sign up now. We'll see you next episode and have a great week of writing. Thanks for listening to this episode of Writers
1: Inc. Access the show notes and leave a comment at writersincpodcast.com.